if you don't have this vision, you know, you don't know where you're going to go, then you just get confusion. If you don't have skills, then you get anxiety. And if you don't have incentives, you just get gradual change. The so things may slowly, slowly change if there's no, no incentives. Maybe depending on the, the power and the influence of that person who can, can make some of that happen, but that person doesn't exist. No, nothing happens. So you need incentives to really embed it and make it across the whole organization. And if you don't have resources, you get frustration. You know, people say, oh, I really want to do that, but I don't have time. Uh, we've heard that over and over again. And if you don't have an action plan, you just get false starts. You know, who's going to do it? When it's going to happen? You know, all those little project management activities that are core, and that's, that's called the action plan. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I hope you're all doing well out there and, and things are going well as you move into uh, fall time of the year. We've got a, a Jim Fava, who's been on this show before, has joined us again. Jim has spent his career helping businesses and governments understand and manage the risks and navigate uh, all the opportunities around sustainability. And his first time with us, he spoke about the golden rules for a sustainable business, and he presented 10 golden rules. And then he joined us again in our series to talk about how to embed sustainability in your process. And then most recently, he, he talked about what is life cycle assessment and why should I care? And these are great episodes. If you haven't listened to those, do go back and listen, especially to the first one where he, he introduced the 10 golden rules because we've been, we've been going through those. And so today he's uh, graciously agreed to come back and continue our series. And we're going to be talking about how to achieve positive impact and what's required. So Jim, welcome to the show. Good. Paul, thanks for uh, inviting me, and I always look forward to our conversations. Uh, I'm excited about the opportunity to interact with you and others uh, that really have been focusing on innovation. Uh, most of my career, you've been focusing on sort of the supply of that sustainability lifecycle information, uh, and it's always a pleasure and, a, and really an honor to be able to speak and, and have conversations with folks who are able to use that information to make more informed uh, decisions. So I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity again. What I like to do is speak a little bit about sort of achieving positive impacts. Uh, to do that requires change, it requires a change management. And so it's really all, so this one really is about how to, how to make change. And as we've been talking about, and because you know the focus of the your podcast series innovation, um, my focus will be on sort of what is the foundational change to embed sustainability information or life cycle information into the innovation process uh, itself. And uh, as we've shared before in these uh, podcast series, uh, Neil D'Souza and Shelley Metcalf and I have a, another podcast series called Five Lives to 50. Uh, and it really is talking about the journey that's used and what are the actions to accelerate and scale embedding sustainability into into innovation where the product manager, which is very much the roles that folks that many of your uh, your, your listeners uh, really fall into, really have a key role to make that happen. And so one of the things that 
I'm working with um, Al Iannuzzi, he's the Vice President of Sustainability with S.V. Lauder, uh, and I'm writing a chapter on his uh, third edition of his uh, book called Greener, Greener Products. And it's sort of interesting because I'm sort of looking at what's the focus of the chapter. I've had two previous chapters over the last eight, nine years. Uh, and this, this focus of this chapter, which is very consistent with what we're talking about today and, and the interactions we've had with you, uh, is on, uh, retitled the, the chapter, uh, Sustainable Innovation is the Next Frontier for Greener Products. Uh, and so it really fits in very, very nicely. So it really is a nice to have, you know, continue this conversation uh, with you. So the two golden rules I'm going to talk about is our golden rule eight, which is a focus on positive impacts, not just the data, information, and study results. And there's a journey associated with that. And I'll talk a little bit about that journey and what do we mean by, you know, sort of results. And then, you know, what's the language of the sustainability lifecycle professional and then, the, you know, the user community and then things that can be done to, to actually make that happen. And the second golden rule is golden rule nine. It's all about actions, changing behavior and business practices. Years ago, I came across uh, sort of an effort by somebody who was, he came up with a sort of a, you know, what would you mean by changing behavior? What are the actions that must happen to uh, to achieve that? So I'll talk about those five. And they've really been foundational. I've got a lot of people who commented, said they really like those. I, I can't take credit for them, but they were very, very, very useful in my own thinking. So let's do the first one. Focus on positive impacts, not just data information and study results. So when you think about that, what you think about is that if you're a sustainability manager or you, you're doing a study and you do an LCA study or, you know, ESG information, once you gather that information, you sort of feel your job is done. And that information is, is collected and summarized and given to somebody. And so who are those somebodies? Because those somebodies need that information to be able to make informed decisions or to make uh, to use that information as they're in their decision-making process. So what are the kinds of folks that might be interested in that outcome? And obviously, sometimes it's the market or, you know, customers. It can be stakeholder dialogue. It could be the innovation or research and development. It could be strategy groups or procurement groups within your company. And so I really think that, you know, the LCA information and SCG is important, but it's going to be used by a function within the company who wants that information to help them make informed decisions. And because this is focused a lot on innovation, you know, we'll, we'll kind of keep it within the innovation R&D function. But if you get begin to look at a person who wants to make a decision about a new product, then they need information about, you know, what are the environmental hotspots or social hotspots? Uh, what are the different types of materials uh, and what are sort of a carbon footprint? or material composition of that related to environmental and social issues. And they take that information in the decision-making. And it's only after they apply that information, you know, to the innovation design, um, and in that product is then rolled out into the marketplace, that you actually get an opportunity to create a business value, you know, growing revenue, enhancing brand, mitigating risk, reducing cost, as we talked about in our uh, Golden Rule full, you know, for um, – in a couple of podcasts ago, but you're also looking at positive sustainability impacts, you know, low embodied carbon, reduced energy, uh, those kinds of things. So what, what you see when we talk about 
you know, sort of this, you know, focus on positive impacts, the sustainability lifecycle professionals, you know, are really all about collecting that data and information, engaging, working with the application people who are making that, who are using that information to make decision, which then as time progress, creates the business value and sustainability impact. So I really think this is what's sort of a key part when we think about an LCA practitioner or a sustainability practitioner, your job is not done when you've done that study and you've turned the results over. You know, as a consultant, you know, I don't feel like my job was done when I turned it over to the, to the client. I often become sort of a translator interpreter for them to help translate and use that information internally to inform their business managers and uh, innovation managers about how that information can be used in informing the decision. So I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in detail. But I think that's, that's sort of understanding that process. Uh, it's critical. And one of the key components of that, and, I, and you've heard me say this uh, in our last podcast about life cycle assessment, the user, the person who wants that information and who's going to use that information, whether it's a materiality assessment, whether it's an LCA uh, study, it helps to identify hotspot, has to be involved with that planning of that study, understanding what's going to be done, where that data is going to come from, how it's going to be analyzed, um, and how he or she might use it right from the beginning. Uh, and if they're not involved with it right from the beginning, you get situations where they just don't understand it when it's finally presented to them. And so it's really key. A success factor is making sure that user community is embedded into the decision-making process and in, or in the and the whole study, which has a lot of decision-making process embedded in it as well, and to really right from the beginning and throughout that whole process. So it's really key when I when I think about companies and I, I talk to them, we've done a lot of work on this over the years. You know, we really try to help them and reemphasize that importance of this beginning um, phase of, a, of any kind of study and to get both the user that information and the collector and provider that information together. Uh, to help make those decisions and make sure everybody understands what's what's going to be done. So that sort of talks about the process a little bit. But we've also talked, you hear about data. This is a data effort. So what the hell does data mean? And so I, I listened to a talk a couple years ago, and it was somebody who was not in the in the environmental sustainability business, but was more in the sort of information management. And he used four terms, and I, I've done a lot of homework further on that, but there are four terms were like data, information, knowledge, and wisdom. And I guess any, anybody who's, you know, Paul, I mean, in your field, this probably is very, uh, very familiar, uh, but it was, it was sort of new to me because I'm focusing more on the data and, and information uh, side of it. But to me, the data is like, you know, the basic facts, you know, and figures – related to, you know, what's being used, you know, how much material is being used, how much energy is used, you know, if there's any greenhouse gases or any kind of pollutant, you know, during the production process, you know, what is the amount of waste generated at each stage in a product life cycle? And so that's an that's sort of like what we call data. And that's in the life cycle assessment terminology, that would be called the life cycle inventory. It's a basic facts data information that builds, you know, the rest of it builds on. You know, the second part is the information. Information uh, in the, here again, going back to the LCA, just using that as an analogy, we have what's called life cycle impact assessment. 
when we first did the uh, Pelston workshop in 1990, uh, LCA was primarily an energy mass uh, mass balance, where you basically got the you know this basic data and added up and merged it and combined it from all the life cycle stages. But there was no interpretation of that. There was no sort of analyzing what would be useful information coming out of that. And so that's why we added the, the second phase of LCA, which is called life cycle impact assessment. And so this is like, instead of just the, the, the amount of greenhouse gas in, in, in the uh, production, it would be like the total carbon footprint of the product. You know, ind indicating the total greenhouse gases and total, you know, over the on our life cycle, you know, or how much water and energy is consumed in manufacturing. So it's more of sort of taking that basic facts and then integrating it a little bit and and, and further interpreting it. And so the third component of this sort of, you know, what is these results data that is the start to help us translate into to impacts both sustainability and business is knowledge. And this is really where I think the future of sustainability and life cycle professional uh, really can play a major role is really helping to translate the information from their study, sustainability life cycle study, into more language that's useful to the uh, to the innovation uh, you know, designers. And this is sort of like, you know, helping people to, you know, identify the, you know, what is the majority of the product impact comes from the production stage, you know, something that's somebody for, coming from the outside may not understand until you can help translate that LCA sustainability information. This is something that's going to be more useful to them. And then the fourth term here is wisdom. And so wisdom in the context of, you know, LCA sort of helps them, the decision maker, use that information to make more informed and sustainable choices. It's often ex come from not just the study result itself, but experience and other studies, experience and insight, experience in, in learnings. And so there's like the wisdom part of it, I think, is also really critical. And so here, example would be encouraging responsible end use of options, you know, end of life options, such as recycling or proper disposal to minimize environmental harm. So when you think about, when we talk about, it's more than just, you know, the results, the results is sort of the beginning. Yeah. These are the kind of things that we really have to think about and, and, uh, and understand. The third part of this is the language used by, I've used the LCA analogy again, is sort of impact category. Things like fossil fuel, water scarcity index, things like uh, uh, global uh, warming potential, land use, biodiversity, toxicity potential, which are meaningful to the environmental life cycle sustainability person in terms of what are those impacts that, you know, human activity is having with from a, from a life cycle perspective on a product, but they're not actionable. I mean, how does a innovation manager understand they get a water scarcity in, in index? Well, what the hell does that mean? Kind of thing. So we're finding there needs to be, there's this gap. And so from the designer standpoint, you know, which, which I think falls into, you know, your innovation team that you, you where you guys work and the, the, your clients work, the, you know, design attributes are things like, you know, energy star rating, biomaterial content, uh, is it recyclable, uh, no black gray list ingredients, uh, you know, the durability of the product, something that you can do something with, they're actionable. And so I really think the what we're trying to do in a lot of 
I've been working on this and where the golden rules really started was, you know, how do we take that life cycle results and communicate it in a matter that is just intuitively relevant to use by the, you know, designers or the decision makers uh, and something they can, they can care. It's part of their decision-making process is embedded into the innovation. So to me, that, that's a big, there's a big gap there. And I, one of the things I think we are all need to do, and I think the example of this podcast and, and other podcasts that began to really understand, to translate to not just the sustainability lifecycle professional, but to the innovation side. So they understand where all this comes from and then begin to meet in the middle to really figure out how to take sustainable innovation as a next frontier for greener, uh, greener products. An example, a quick example is... Um, one that we had done, we had done some work with a computer company a, a while ago, and it was interesting. Uh, they wanted to have eco-design into the computer innovation process. And what they ended up doing was taking somebody from the environmental department and transferred him over to the uh, innovation team. And it didn't work. The environmental professional kept talking about in all those sustainability life cycle impact terms and the and the innovation designers it just didn't make any sense they couldn't translate it uh, so they eventually took that person put that person back into the at that point it was just the environment health and safety department into the ehs department and they brought one of their own people a woman from the innovation team and put her into that eco design role and but she understood the language of the um of the innovation team, which is where you want all that sustainability, life cycle knowledge to finally end up. And then she worked with the environmental sustainability people and learned what their language was. And then she was able to work with them to translate it to something that's manageable. And it worked. I mean, it was a very successful story. So that's a, just a simple example. What got my mind years ago saying, hey, we've got to really connect the sustainability lifecycle professional with the innovation people if we're really going to make make change uh, perspective. The final sort of example here I wanted to sort of walk through. This is a, a scenario where um, you look at what might be a typical kind of exchange between a lifecycle professional and innovation engineer. And I'm approaching it from a life cycle protect, professional more more so than Paul than from an innovation engineer. But I'm sort of trying to put it together that sort of helps me. Uh, so I, I, I will define the scenario. And then I will then talk a little bit about, you know, how the LCA professional might respond. And then I'll th just throw out some examples of how the innovation engineer might, might respond, just to illustrate that kind of dialogue that might occur. So the situation is, and this is not unusual, it's exactly happening right now, is that you get a new electrical vehicle car coming on the, you know, on the market, and it uses a battery, as we know, which reduces the fossil fuel consumption during its use stage. But it also poses a significant environmental burden at the end of its life due to landfill waste. So we have sustainability information, life cycle thinking information, LCA information that shares that. And this is so the life cycle professional really provides all that information. And then they realize that it, there is this trade-off 
between reducing greenhouse gases during the use stage, but that itself may be increasing the potential landfill waste at the end of the product life cycle. So what does the innovation engineer do and what kind of responses they have? And I think this is a classic trade-off now that is surfacing. You know, we heard a CBS uh, sort of announcement on this a couple of months ago about complaining or, or, or talking about the problem of, you know, windmill turbines and also, uh, you know, auto batteries uh, that are now their useful life is over and they're ending up in, in landfill and the, the whole waste management industry is scrambling, you know, for that. But they knew that 25 years ago. And so in the innovation stage, there needs to be information like this that then can, what I just shared, and then they do something about it. And that's going to be embedded as part of the innovation process. So a couple things that the innovation engineer can do. You can design for uh, disassembly. So he may and she may say, let's consider redesigning the battery to be more module. So it's easily disassembled and can more efficiently recover valuable materials and thus reduce landfill waste. You know, another one, which I think is sort of critical now, everybody's become aware of this, you know, it's really collaborate with regulatory bodies. You know, perhaps we should work closely with the local and, you know, national regulatory agencies, in some cases international now, and they may have, you know, process and guidelines uh, related to infrastructure, you know, battery uh, disposal that, that's uh, surfacing. And the other part that I think is, is part of our continuous learning uh, and monitoring is that, you know, even though the product manager has got to the point where they've, they've got some ideas about how they can design for disassembly, technology is changing very, very quickly. And so having a continuous monitoring of what's happening out there in the recycling process or repurpose process, and then they could use that information to help identify who those key stakeholders are who might be able to partner with to really make, you know, make changes in then how that battery is uh, disposed of and managed at the, at the end of life. So that's just a simple little illustration of you got a scenario. This is a situation the life cycle community identifies that there is some, you know, good and some potential bad. And then you know, what kind of responses that the innovation engineer could take. So this is, you know, in summary, I think what I tried to, to show is that there is a, you know, success, the sustainability and materiality assessment and LCA work is just sort of the beginning. There's a journey and you've got to get through those many functions. You've got embedded in the, the various processes and it takes time to realize those both of sustainability benefits and the business business value. But this is what the golden rule is. It's just people realizing that it's a systems perspective. It's not just one impact, it's multiple impacts and having trade-offs and having, it's going to be hard, but this is where the process works. And this is where all the opportunity is right now, quite frankly. So this is sort of summary of golden rule eight. So any questions or thoughts, Paul? Yeah, no, I'd like to share some my perspective on some of that, Jim. That was that was really thorough and, and excellent. Thanks for sharing. You know, I when you said in the beginning that the it's the opportunity to create the value is when you're in the market, which is so true. And then, you know, follow it to the market is 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 some of the things that I heard you talk about. And we've seen that in our own discussions of innovation of saying, hey, it's a lot more than just the idea. Val innovation is nothing until you get the value. 
there's nothing to it, right? Until you get the value. But your comments about data, information, knowledge, and wisdom. So it's really interesting because that's like preaching to the choir for, for me because our company <laughs> called Sophion, right? Sophos is knowledge. Eon is building, right? So it was the concept of this, this collection of knowledge, this house of knowledge being so critical, okay. so fundamental in innovation. And now, you know, here you've just extended it to include uh, the sustainability aspects. And language is the number one thing to get from data and information over to knowledge and eventually wisdom and, and learning and some of the things you talked about. So it was really, uh, really fun to hear you put that into perspective <laughs> of, of uh, I mean, that's our life. That's what we live. And that's what we, we say is critical for innovation as a backbone. And now you just laid out some great examples. So yeah, thanks for sharing that, Jim. Let's, let's move on to your other golden rule. Yeah. So this will be a little shorter. Over rule nine, it's all about actions, chaining behavior, and uh, business practice. And so if you remember in our podcast two, we talked about golden rule six, which was basically governance. Uh, we had three legs of a stool, environment, social, and economic. And if you didn't have a seat, you didn't have a stool. And this, this seat was governance. So what do we mean by governance? And, you know, you can, a lot of people have different organizations have different words for it, but basically it's the processes, systems, structure through which that institution, that organization is managed and it's uh, how it makes decisions. And so to me, that's, that's the governance. And so this golden rule number nine, they came, this, I, I said a minute ago, they, there's a gentleman who came up with these five attributes, which I think are, are, were wonderful and I've, I've liked them and I've used this for quite a while. And I think what's interesting about it, this, there's a lot of ways people can define governance, but to me, these are five. If they, if it happens, then you really can achieve change and really get embed innovation or embed sustainability into in, innovation. So the, the five are, are wisdom. You need to have that basic wisdom and vision of where you want to go. The second is skills. So you've got to have skills, tools, people know how to do things, incentives, you know, your KPIs, your, your performance, your bonus calculation is based on some kind of incentive to go forward. You have to have resources. You've got to have the tools. You've got to have people. You've got to have training. You've got to have the computer systems and so forth. And the fifth one is action plan. And so when you get, if all five of those are in place, you get change. And I think this has been... When I talk to many companies and I, I walk through this, a lot of the board or senior manager companies, somebody was, yeah, hey, Bill, you remember we had this thing a while ago and we had good, good interest and a lot of excitement, but we didn't have any incentives. And so nothing, nothing happened. Um, or there was a, a, you know, there's a frozen middle. There's a variety of things like this. So this became kid or critical. And so it really was something where it says, if you don't have this vision, you know, you don't know where you're going to go, then you just get confusion. If you don't have skills, then you get anxiety. And if you don't have incentives, you just get gradual change. The so things may slowly, slowly change if there's no, no incentives. And maybe depending on the, the power and the influence of that person who can, can make some of that happen, but that person doesn't exist. No, nothing happens. So you need incentives to really embed it and make it across the whole organization. And if you don't have resources, you get frustrations. 
You know, people say, oh, I really want to do that, but I don't have time. We've heard that over and over again. And if you don't have an action plan, you just get false starts. You know, who's going to do it? When it's going to happen? You know, all those little project management activities that occur, and that's, that's called the action plan. So to me, this is a really critical, you know, component to get any change, to get embedding to sustainability into the innovation process. You know, all five of these need to need to occur as it relates to the, you know, the innovation, you know, processes, so forth. And final point, people have said when I walk through this, well, maybe this all makes sense. And they said, well, why aren't more companies doing it? I mean, it seems like it's embedded. I mean, it's, it's like a no-brainer. Well, I mean, there were three sort of responses that we heard uh, when you have sort of a, a dialogue. I think I talked to you about our product sustainability roundtable. You had up to 20 companies, you know, who were, you know, mid-level managers in companies, and they were, were talking about these kind of things. And one was just resistance to change. Look, I've been managing the, you know, the innovation process for 30 years, I, I, why should I change? Show me the benefits, you know, and why and, and how would they impact me or, you know, what I do kind of a thing. Uh, the second one, which is really the one you hear more and more, is that I don't see any reason to change. I you know there's no customers asking for it. Competitors aren't doing it. I don't see any competitors doing it. So there's no basis for why, why I should change. And this one, this one, Paul, is interesting. Five, six, seven, eight years ago, that was a major reason companies just didn't bother because there was sustainability wasn't on the topic. Customers weren't asking for it. Competitors weren't, weren't doing it. You didn't have any government regulations, very little on it. Now, in the last year or so, we've seen a major uptake. And you commented, and, and I'd like to hear your comment in just a minute, on, on the change of the last five years where sustainability now is becoming embedded into the decision making, but because there was now customer, you know, competitors, uh, regulatory community uh, going forward. And so those were the two, there was a few others, but I think in terms of time, I think we'll leave it at that. But I, I do think there's now a change in, the, in the, the, the whole ecosystem out there where customers, governments, in the regulation standpoint, competitors, markets globally are, are saying we want a greener product. And now I think sustainable innovation is the next frontier for greener products is, is happening. And I think, you know, what you all are doing and what we're trying to do with our Five Lives to 50 podcast is really to bring the attention of what is sustainable innovation to the innovation teams and also to the sustainability managers so you both can begin to communicate and talk so we really get action to create a more sustainable world with more sustainable products yeah yeah well well said jim you know the um you're right no need to change no reason to change that has changed for sure we were used to say five years ago well the regulatory is going to drive the change and it, it to a degree that's accurate but now what's new is we see companies looking at their competitors, they're looking at revenue, they see that if they become more sustainable, they can actually target and identify how it's going to improve their revenues. They've got their brand image, 
right? Their company image, their brand image, and they're tying it to sustainability. You know, as, as the consumers, especially if you're in the business to consumer environment, the consumer's becoming smarter. So, so you've all got all these other things now, in addition to the regulatory piece, that's, uh, we see it. I mean, that's why there's, that's why we're doing this. So I'm so grateful you come on to this podcast and why we're spending so much time talking and teaching and companies are asking, well, okay, how do I do it? And I think you just laid out some really great points, Jim. Thanks for that. No, that's good, Paul. And I mean, I think the the business value of environmental health and safety has always been, or not, but primarily been driven by some government regulation, not related to products, but I can't put it in the air, water, land, primarily from, you know, from manufacturing. And environmental health and safety was always a cost to the system cost the business. Uh, I just, now I got a new regulation. I got to put this in new technology and all this stuff. It was never viewed as a positive from senior manager. It's legal. You guys take care of that. And so now, because as just you said, uh, there's customers asking for it. The whole markets uh, are asking for it. Competitors are doing it. And it's, and it, it's happening because it's going to generate revenue. It's going to enhance the brand. It's going to mitigate risk. Uh, And so I think that's, it's, the time is right. Uh, so it's uh, exciting to, to be able to share this information with you and others. And uh, I wish you all the, the, all the success in, in what you are trying to do. Yeah. No, thanks, Jim. And when you talked uh, earlier about the language and, and, and making the, uh, the example you shared of making the language as accessible by people who are thinking about revenue and thinking about competition and thinking about these kind of in my brand image, right? That's that gap now, that translation, you may, it all just, you just, it's just all just tied together here at the end. So, so Jim, I, I can't thank you enough. We're not done, right? We have more, so you'll be back, but the knowledge, the wisdom, the experience and the, the stories are really fascinating, Jim. And, and thanks for sharing that with the audience. Good. Thanks, Paul. And I look forward to uh, continuing our uh, conversation. Good. We'll talk to you next time. Take care, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that. Somebody told me, you know, I'm listening to some of these podcasts two, three times because I'm capturing it and writing it down. And so I think Jim's fit in that category because he's such good stuff he's (laughs) sharing with us. So do take a listen, go back, bookmark these so you can listen to them again. I wish you all a great week ahead. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. And uh, we'll talk again with Jim real soon. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.